Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. My name is Chris Lambert. And my name is Travis Bean. And on today's episode, we count down our favorite and least favorite movies of the year. Chris sticks to movies that came out in 2023, while Travis, that's me, ranks everything I watched this year. Get ready for some lively discussions. Oh my gosh, Hear there he. he is. Here he it is the end of 2023. Uh-huh. Let's do a recap. Wow. Uh, uh, we sent out a guy with a bugle just for that? Yeah, I know. Uh, a little bit of a blown budget there, but... I guess so, but if I mean, if we're really going to go for it and do that much, he could give a little bit more of a speech than that. I mean, this is a big deal. This is the recap of 2023 in movies. Like, he was just a bugle person, you know? I guess so, but... Uh, I guess maybe we should have discussed this ahead of time. I I did put you in charge of the grand opening ceremony and everything, and I shouldn't be complaining, but maybe I spent a little bit more money for someone who knows how to speak eloquently in front of a crowd. <laughs> it was me giving the speech. Oh, that was not you. The, not the bugle, man. It was me. Oh, you well, you wore you were wearing that feathery cap. I didn't recognize you. I know. I did a quick change too from my bugle outfit. I yeah. just pocketed the money. Um, all right. Fair enough. I, I forgive you. <laughs> so I, I admire your gumption. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I mean, if they, think, are you hurting? Like you, did, you went through all this work just to pocket like a little cash from the budget. Yeah. I also wanted to learn how to play the bugle. I didn't get very far. Yeah. I mean, it sounded okay, but uh, I, I am assuming this is as much as $2 and 50 cents can get you in bugle lessons. Yeah, the budget was not. <laughs> yeah, you must be really hurting. Like, man, I, I can help you out. I just watched a, a YouTube video last night where this kid wanted to make a Mr. Beast video where everybody has to stand in the circle for a prize and the last to leave wins like a million dollars kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But he only had $20 bill. Mm -hmm. And then not a million bought, dollar bill, not a million dollar bill. And then he bought paint. So the prize was eight dollars and 33 cents. And he was going around Austin asking people to compete in this game for a grand prize of eight dollars and thirty three cents. <laughs> I would have done it, especially if he's famous on YouTube. Fourteen million subscribers. I you say Mr. Beast, and I know like that's that's like the biggest channel, right, on YouTube. Oh yeah, I to this day have no idea what it is, <laughs> and I feel like such an old man. Yeah, that's it's very old man energy, Travis. <laughs> 
someone played a video for me once actually like a a guy who's like five years younger than me and even then when i saw it i was like i still don't know what this is (laughs) yeah it's a lot of like games for money or just like big budget like concepts yeah um i'm too busy watching movies yes that's right which is the actual focus of today 2023 movies and Mm. first watch movies so i'm gonna be talking about the 2023 movies that i saw and travis you're going to be discussing any all new movies i watched in 2023 yeah do you have a a total like do you know the Um, number of new movies you watched in 2023 yeah letterbox tells you and in total i've watched i think about 250 movies this year um but only half of those i was surprised to find this out have been new ones this is probably my weakest year yet since i started watching movies for watching new movies um but i actually haven't really minded that i've i feel like i've um kind of just evolved a little bit as a movie watcher and and as a person so like movies have more of a profound effect on me i think and it's been really nice to revisit movies i like and end up liking them more so this year has been pretty great for that when too i feel like you've had a lot of 4ks come out that you've been watching that's correct so you've been re-watching a lot just because of the 4k experience very true yeah and it's and some of those movies completely you know they take on a whole new level when you see them in that kind of clarity nice so a yeah. hundred like 125 first time watches this year around there yeah about that and i'm gonna go on over the top 10 okay i'm actually kind of curious what the bottom 10 are <laughs> i i can pull that up for you no problem at all yeah we've talked about a lot of them on this show so you hit me with uh what's what's oh, coming in at the end you want a mile okay so of what i've watched this year um Midsummer's at the bottom. <laughs> that was the first watch for you. Yep. Um, then Babylon. Talked about on this show. <laughs> the Family Stone. Do you know that movie? No. It's a really big Christmas movie. It's um, Rachel McAdams and Zara Jessica Parker and Luke Wilson. And uh, who's the who's that awesome actor? Well, Diane Keaton's in it, but who's the guy? Um, Dermot Mulroney. Yeah, Dermot Mulroney's in the movie. Um, who's I mean he, all the, everybody in the movie is like good Craig T. Mm-hmm. Nelson that's the guy's name right oh yeah 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 coach he's great yeah coach I, I wanted to say that but I, I don't even know that reference I just know like everyone calls him that <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't remember what it was Um, but yeah it was just like a real I, I, I this is a I, I hate movies like this like uh, this is where I leave you you remember that movie yes i hate i never saw it i hate toxic family not that i hate them like i like a movie like home for the holidays which is a jodie foster movie she does it really well but there's a certain kind of like toxic family movie where like everybody's so like there's no redemption or lesson to be found in any of these people they're just awful and like to me the family stone is like the worst example that i've ever seen so that was that was a tough watch for me ouch i tend to not like family movies all that much in general yeah because i feel like the plot tends to be very limited in what you get it's almost always just the family can't get along and then they remember their family right and like that trumps all just like 
ad nauseum for every family movie. And that gets really limited and boring to me, which mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm sure there are exceptions that I'd be like, I do like that one. I do like that one. But for the most part, it's a it's a genre or setup I'm not enthusiastic about just because of how much it tends to repeat. Yeah, right. The, so the Family Stone does that to a pretty aggravating degree. I would encourage you then to watch Home for the Holidays, which again is a Jodie Foster movie directed by her. And I think it might have been her first movie, actually. Um, but really, really interesting commentary on like what happens as you get older and like you just don't. You and your family like kind of grow apart and you change. It's a very honest and truthful look at like what can happen like you you know you don't always retain the same kind of relationship you you once had think so it's just a cool dark movie in that way nice okay i feel like i remember trailers for this back in the day oh yeah i'm sure i mean it was a big deal and people still really like it um yeah, I don't <laughs> the know. The tagline, the tagline is on the fourth Thursday in November, eighty-four million American families will gather together. Dot dot dot, and wonder why. Nice little uh, cynical tagline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't. I'm trying. To, I'm looking at my list here, and I'm trying to remember which ones I've watched this year. I'm pretty sure I watched Spider-Man: Homecoming at the very beginning of the year, but that one depressed me to a profound degree and i i can't bring myself to watch the other well, who's the guy who's the new spider-man <laughs> uh t- he, even Holland. his name's boring yeah yeah i just can't even i can't i can't imagine sitting through another one of those that's crazy to me because he's the only person that i thought fit peter parker you mean like looked like him uh, acted looked really i hate i hate toby Maguire as oh, spider-man yeah, and Andrew Garfield, I thought, was okay, but just not, like, not Peter Parker. Yeah. He was, like, he was, I like Andrew Garfield, so I liked what he was doing, but it didn't remind me of the the Peter Parker that I kind of, like, grew up with and liked. I think, I mean, that's totally fair. I, um, you recently... Not you recently. I've heard you talk about how you you hate the Michael Bay Transformers because who who's the main guy? Who's our hero in that? Shia LaBeouf. No. <laughs> who's the main like robot Transformer? Oh, Optimus Optimus Prime. Optimus Prime. I, I almost said that and I couldn't remember if like that's a bad guy or not. Um, like how he gets tangled up in the wires and like falls yeah. over like a <laughs> like it's a old timey slapstick comedy, and you're just like. Optimus Prime would never do that and how infuriated that made you. And yeah. like, I have always, I kind of thought I, I wondered in my head, like, do I like anything that much from like, that I'm nostalgic for that? Like I would get mad if they then didn't honor it or like went against it to that degree. And, it, and I feel like you're the same way here about Spider-Man that it, he, if the person isn't, being Peter Parker, like, you know, Peter Parker, he's important to you. Like, you actually need the character. You need the actor to be portraying the Peter Parker, you know, like, that's important to you in a way it just isn't to me, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I wondered if I felt that way about anything. And I have to say that I'm not the biggest James Bond fan. Um, I've seen a few of the older movies. I actually have fond memories of watching them at my great grandpa's house. 
but I haven't considered myself like an Uber fan or anything, but I have seen a few of them and gotten to know the franchise a little bit better since the Daniel Craig 007s. And I just revisited Casino Royale and I kind of had that reaction to it where I was like watching the way they made this character and how different it was from the prototypical uh, James Bond. And I was just kind of like, it just really rubbed me the wrong way. Wait, Casino Royale rubbed you the wrong way. Yeah, I mean, A, just in terms of who James Bond is in the movie, like the way they portray his character. Like, it's a, he is an interesting character arc, no doubt. Like, I actually really dig, in theory, what they wanted to do with him. Um, but as far as James Bond goes and, like, what the movies are and represent and the kind of aesthetic around James Bond, like who he is and the type of spy he is. Uh, everything in Casino Royale just felt very familiar to me. Like it felt more of like a modern thriller than a James Bond movie. And that's fine. You can just make a modern thriller, but his name in the movie is James Bond. You know, it's in the James Bond canon. So there was something about all that where I was just kind of like, I was just kind of like, oh, uh, like I can't like this movie in the same way because of that. That's fascinating. I mean, you saw it in theaters when it came out, right? Yeah, and I remember... I, I, I will say I've never loved it as much as everyone else, but I always remembered enjoying it. I wonder if some of it is kind of what I call the the heat phenomenon, uh -huh. where I didn't watch Heat for the first time until like 2014, 2015. Yeah, we watched and it together. We did watch it together, didn't we? Yeah, we it watched it in Iowa. Iowa. Yeah. yeah, and everything about it kind of bored me because yeah. I felt like I had watched it. It was like 50 other movies that I had seen. Right. And that's because they were all aping heat. Yeah. And I wonder if when Casino Royale came out, you enjoyed it a little bit more because, you know, you hadn't watched as many movies. Yeah. And right. then in the time since so many of the modern thrillers you have seen, have been inspired by it that when you go back to it it feels a lot more it doesn't have that newness to it and feels a little bit more by the numbers the same way that heat did like yeah. heat was groundbreaking at the time right um oh yeah for sure but in hindsight if you've watched it back to that point so i wonder if maybe a little bit of that is going on but i mean that was the big complaint about Casino Royale when it came out was that it wasn't it didn't have the texture of a Bond movie for sure despite having some of the the beats of a Bond movie like him ordering a cocktail shaken not stirred yeah and there is moments of like humor in it sure I would um, say that's the strongest part of the movie actually but I like I love it so much more than any other Bond movie I've ever seen I just yeah. wipes the floor with everything else to me yeah, I, I had a feeling you felt that way, but I couldn't remember if you liked it that much. But um, yeah, so I, I still kind of have nostalgia for it just because I did see it when it came out in theaters. And I like I mean, I like it like there are things I like about it. Um, I just yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> it just made me feel it, it just reminded me of you and the whole Transformers saying I was like, oh, I'm being like defensive <laughs> like there's nothing you could say to me to make me like this bond movie because like it's not bond like that's just all there is to it
Yeah, if you want like that, you're not getting it. <laughs> yeah, from from it. And... I just, I, I guess, like mo- I, mostly what I mean is like Bond is cool. Like even if he's not the most like likable guy, sometimes if he's a bit of an antihero, like Bond needs to be cool. And like that's the one thing this franchise has. And like I didn't feel that way about him in that movie. Like he didn't. A the movie wasn't filmed in a cool way. The same director did Goldeneye, and I think that movie looks awesome. Wait, what the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> I was I was fine with everything you were saying until you're saying that Daniel Craig as Bond is not cool in the movie. Yeah, and that it's not filmed in a way that's cool. no, it's really boring and by the numbers, and again very familiar in a way. I was I was just blown away. Like it, it's nothing like Goldeneye, which has like this very cartoonish. Um, elevated feel to it like it's it it's much more movie like this this to me felt like it was trying to be gritty and hard and real you know yes i mean there was a, a grittiness to it there was a uh we're going to lean into more of the like grounded spectacle like that first chase scene with all the parkour and yeah. some of the shot it's it's so visually different than i've never watched goldeneye but i saw the movies after goldeneye sure yeah they're you know similar and they're so we've talked about this before like so Mm. cut heavy it's right one of those things where there's the one boat chase i think i've even talked about it on the the show before and in a speedboat chase they just keep going from like pierce brosnan's face to the bad guy's face to pierce brosnan's face to like a hand picking up a gun to a face it's just close up after close up after close up when they're on speedboats doing speedboat things right. and you never get the actual visuals of the speedboats as a main focus or a main point of the right of the scene and that is so infuriating and like dumb to me it was actually the first time i remember hating the way a film was shot and yeah. Casino Royale, that opening chase scene, just taking a little more time to breathe, a little bit more time for, like, not... I hate that long shot is used for long take. Yeah. And that the two <laughs> sound so similar. But, like, wide shots yeah, of the chase, like, a lack of cut, like, it highlighted the action and the stunts yeah. in a way that right. I don't think we got from the other Bond movies, which made the action sequences, to me, feel all the more cool and distinct but it's funny that you hate all of that where i just i saw (laughs) casino royale in theaters earlier this year and the whole time i'm sitting there thinking like this is so much better (laughs) this is amazing i love the way this is shot this is shot this is shot i love this choice this choice this choice and you're watching it going like that's stupid that's boring it's just boring to me like everything you're describing it reminds me of the movie point break that not the original which is one of the best movies ever made but the remake which is also a pretty incredible movie i think very underrated and I, I think the most notable thing about that movie is how well it highlights stunt work because it's such an integral part of the movie that these guys are performing these stunts and they're they're trying to achieve like a higher plane of being through these stunts, you know? Um, they're going after, it's called the Ozaki 8 in the movie and there are these eight stunts you have to do to like find enlightenment. It's, it's kind of goofy as I say it out loud, but it works in the movie. Um, and to me, like, 
all I can do is think about that kind of movie that really does highlight the stunts in an emotional way uh, that I just don't really get from something like Casino Royale. Like you're, what you're describing is true. Like that is a different way to shoot a Bond movie. And I can see enjoying that if it's in the right kind of movie. I just think the general aesthetic of Casino Royale is just really boring and nondescript and not nearly as interesting as anything they were doing in the the 90s especially GoldenEye and all those cuts you're talking about in GoldenEye to me are just part of the it's part of the aesthetic it's part of the it does have a cartoonish choppy feel to it like it's supposed to feel a little chaotic when you're out in the waters with them um in a way that I just don't think would fit in what Casino Royale was going for and so and it's just a matter of taste at that point like you like what Casino Royale is going for and I like what the older ones went for so you would take the world is not enough. <laughs> Which one is that one? The second one? Uh, it's Goldeneye, Tomorrow Never Dies, The World is Not Enough, Die Another Day. Well, Die Another Day is bad, but the other three are all right. <laughs> die Another Day is pretty bad. Yeah. I remember seeing that in theaters and just being very unhappy. See, that's the one, though, that has the same... It's even more cartoonish, but it, it just, like... There's something about it that doesn't quite feel honest or realized about it. So, like, it's just a matter of, like, whatever path you choose, like, fully realizing it, making it impactful. And so that's my main problem with Casino Royale is I just didn't ever feel impacted by it. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. This might uh, be our biggest disagreement. Yeah. The other thing, too. Nah, never mind. We have to stop talking about Casino Royale. <laughs> Yeah, in terms of an end-of-year recap, we are not doing a good job. Well, I, you know, part of my year was watching the Daniel Craig movie, so. Yeah, that's true. I watched the second Got... one uh, the other night. Quantum? Yeah, didn't enjoy it. No, I hated Quantum. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> any other lowlights you want to know? <laughs> Besides Spider-Man Homecoming? Mm, no. Okay. Um, at the bottom of my list for 2023, the one, well, let's work backwards a little bit. Okay. I, in terms of my categories, you know, it goes my favorites. Wow. Impressive, enjoyable, positives, neutral, which neutral is essentially like, you know, the five out of 10, uh, the midpoint of everything. And then almost not quite, not for me and really not for me mm. <laughs> makes up the, the lower end. And for the most part, I had 31 movies that were above neutral and then 15 that were lower, which like almost had the bulk of those. So it's really only seven movies that ended up in the not quite, not for me, really not for me categories. So not quite. There's you people, mm. uh, the Kenya Burris uh, rom-com for Netflix with Jonah Hill. With Jonah Hill. I forget everybody else in it. Yeah. Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Lauren London. It like such good chemistry between Jonah Hill and Laura London at the very beginning. And then the whole story of the movie is just pathetic, annoying, frustrating. I, I strongly agree with that statement. Yeah. Which is how I feel about every Kenya Burris project at this point. <laughs> I love the first few seasons of Blackish, and then everything else that he's done has felt like, the word indulgent gets thrown around a lot, but it's felt like incredibly indulgent to yeah. me. Uh, so that's the only one in Not Quite. And then Not For Me 
has a four sixty five. Mm-hmm. The Adam Driver dinosaur movie, which I was so hoping to enjoy. Yeah. And then it's just really painful. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Last Voyage of the Demeter, yeah. which is the Dracula on a boat movie. And that's really frustrating because there were so, <laughs> many, <laughs> there were so many people on Twitter that were trying to hype this up. Really? When it came out. It they were bad. just like, it's like stunning and the ending is insane and here's the thing about this movie dracula sleeps in the ship's cargo hold like Mm -hmm. they don't realize he's in there but at night he'll come out and like feed and then go back into the cargo hold so they know at one point that he has his what is it not the casket the coffin Mm -hmm. in there but he's just not in there at the time that they discover it. And they're like, we know where the beast sleeps. We'll wait until nightfall and then set a trap for it. Like, you know exactly where it is. Why are you waiting until nightfall? And the plan is to draw it out onto the ship, trap it, and then set the boat on fire and sail away in the lifeboat. That makes perfect sense to me. Why don't you just set the boat on fire in the day? <laughs> Because they know, they know, they know it can't come out during the day. They've made that determination. They've made it clear. It only comes out at night. It can't come out during the day. But yet they wait until night and try to set this trap. Like, you know it's in the exact coffin it is. Put boxes on top of it. Get in the lifeboat. Set the boat on fire in broad daylight. And you're completely fine. And you had people praising the end of the movie when it's like, it has the biggest plot hole I think I could find in a modern movie this is the problem with movies that feel the need to explain themselves and like lay everything out like you you start to get caught up in that logic trap and i mean i'm somebody who doesn't think logic is a huge deal a lot of the time but like if you do work yourself into a corner (laughs) then like kind of just up in the logic of the movie like it does become difficult to become part of the emotion you're looking for through through the plots like the the portal this plot is to like what the deeper meaning is and it's just like it's so dumb like i guess movies feel pressured to explain everything and because they explain everything they make it more complicated and they open it up to holes that could happen like here's my here's what i say don't explain anything like that's the best approach you can have for a movie is like stop trying to explain stuff because if someone tries to say something about a plot hole all you can do is be like well they didn't really tell us about this you know and then you just move on yeah it becomes a logic gap where you're just like, well, we don't have that information, so it's possible there's a good reason. Yeah. With this, we had all the information, and there's no reason, unless you're just saying the people in the 1800s were dumb. <laughs> well, which, that's like, true. <laughs> apologies to anybody from the 1800s Sorry, who's ben listening Franklin. to this podcast. Yeah, even though you're a uh, shitty guy. So yeah, last voyage of the Demeter, shitty. Uh, then it's Transformers Rise of the Beasts. <laughs> who's who's in these movies anymore? I don't even know anymore. It was a bunch of, you know, new people. Okay. And that was another one where I like let myself get cautiously optimistic. Like, you know, Michael Bay's away from it. Sorry, Travis. And so maybe <laughs> it's going to not be juvenile. <laughs> and everything I we'll, like about it. We'll have like some actual like strong writing and no it was worse than the michael bay movies uh because they didn't know what to do with the story 
they keep focusing on the humans when nobody cares about the humans. We just want Transformers to do cool Transformer things. And they're always like, we need to focus on the humans. <sighs> and then it didn't have good action sequences. So you don't have even the visual flair that Michael Bay brings to it or the sense yeah, of action straight. that Michael Bay brings to it. You just have bullshit, like total, like, ugh. So below that, which I'm going to lower right now as we're talking, uh, is the Flash. Oh, yeah. In the really not for me category. Yeah. Um, that made just, some waves this year. Horrendous movie. Start <laughs> to finish. Just horribly handled. I'm sure it's not great, although I have not seen it. Just bad CGI, bad decisions everything every like almost everything i hated michael keaton does a good job but that's to be expected but aren't you sick of seeing him in these movies where like you know like of course he did a good job he's michael keaton but like what is he doing in this movie like you're better than this is all i can think whenever i see him doing something like this i know it makes what birdman it? <laughs> it somehow ruins birdman <laughs> what movie is he also a villain in that i'm thinking of um, uh Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah, that. Okay, yeah, that one. <laughs> I just saw him, seeing him in that movie depressed me so much. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are was, you doing, Keaton? That was awful. Uh, so, The Flash, yeah, truly horrendous. And then I have Asteroid City uh, second to oh, last. Wow. wow, you like disliked it that much. I guess that kind of makes sense for you if I think about it. I mean, I like other Wes Anderson films. Mm-hmm. But there was just something about this one that never, I don't think it ever leaned into its premise strongly. Oh, that's unfair. Nothing that it did really elevated to a point I found interesting. Mm -hmm. So all the stuff with the alien, interesting, but I kept going, that's it. And then all the human drama, you have some cool things. I kept saying, that's it. Some of the meta stuff that went on, interesting, but I just kept thinking that's it. The whole movie just had me right. going, that's it, that's it, that's it, until it ended, and then I found myself very angry. I kind of, even though I, I liked it, because, and I, I mean, I got this kind of a boneheaded thing to say, but I feel like I'm just going to always like a Wes Anderson movie because it just wants to entertain me. Like, everybody in it is so good, and the humor is so great. Like, he, his movies make me laugh more than most movies do because it's just such a good time i can't see myself disliking it but i kind of agree with most of what you said that if i'm looking at it from a more critical standpoint it's just a hodgepodge of ideas and i think more than anything it wanted to be very indulgent in a way like it's supposed to be reflective and meta of like making movies and telling stories and being part of something bigger i just it just never felt realized enough for me that like there were certain like sentiments I totally connected with and like wanted to like it more, but the movie wasn't draw me in in the way that it was supposed to. So, yeah. Yeah. It's just didn't, didn't hit for me in a way. I don't think it's like a badly done movie. It just feels like a draft, but it's at the second better movie, second bottom of your list. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. <laughs> Uh, and then last is white men can't jump. Oh yeah. Wow. Okay. I mean, 
not a successful movie at all. No, it's so okay. I wrote about this. I forget maybe just in my rankings, but the opening scenes illustrate just the gigantic difference in quality. And I think get at <laughs> a th- I actually wonder how you feel about this. So in the opening scene of the original, uh, you have about, I think it's like 12 minutes. It's like 12 to 15 minutes of the opening pickup game that has Wesley Snipes. And then what's his face? Uh, Woody Harrelson. Yeah, Woody Harrelson kind of shows up and you have this whole interplay of him trying to get into the game. Mm -hmm. There's a few like little conversations when he's outside of the court that kind of introduces you to some of his character and the tone of it. They do this, uh, these horse, I think they play horse and you see the hustle happen and it's very drawn out. It's built up. It's a whole sequence, right? It's not, uh, what do you call it? It's not a set piece in a way, but it has some of that vibe to where it's this longer drawn out right. kind of short story mm-hmm. that introduces you to the characters. The opening of the remake, it's like three minutes. They try to do all the character introductions, all the drama, all of it just yeah. condensed down totally. all the characterization into three minutes to where it's just like, 25 seconds of the initial pickup game, like 20 seconds of Jack Harlow saying something, and then 20 seconds of the actual like uh, racket that he pulls to get ahead. And that's it. Then they just move on. So it's much more... Wait, what's the word? Economical? Uh Uh-huh, right. In how it's going about things, like efficient, but it drains all the life out of the film. Totally, yeah. So you lose all the the flavor, all the emotion, all the joy. It's hollow, lifeless, and it's that start to finish. Yeah, that's just the kind of movie where, like, I just don't understand why you're doing a remake. A, just on the level of, like, who is this appealing to? Like, how do you plan to make your money back on this kind of thing? But also just, like, White Man Can't Jump, the original thrives and succeeds because of the chemistry between those two people like those those are magnetic legendary actors they they play awesome character actors like they're just any scene they're in they improve they just bring so much to the table that if you're going to do a remake of them you have to like you have to be willing to get top-notch talent you have to know we're going to remember these people and they have to have the same kind of chemistry like that movie just doesn't work all of the emotional interpennies don't work if like if those guys aren't doing the kind of job they're doing it's like what are you doing making a remake of that it's crazy i know and one that doesn't have any life to it it's crazy it's dumb so yeah that's at the bottom yeah it's probably in my bottom i think i have it like close to the bottom of my 2023 probably in the bottom five good I didn't like hate it, hate it, but I was just kind of like, why does this exist? I, yeah, I feel like I hated the flash more, but I felt like the flash at least had some moments of a heartbeat. So it, it's at 44 where yeah. white men can't jump. Just no, nothing. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about good movies. Yeah. What, uh, what are your top ones? 
All right. Do we want to like go back and forth like Ebert and Siskel style? Yeah, we can do that. We can okay. do that. So we're starting with number 10, right? Yeah. Okay. I do want to give a um, honorable mention to... Well, I, I want to give honorable mentions to the 2023 movies I did like that didn't make this list, which would have been Past Lives, uh, Magic Mike's Last Dance. Fucking awesome movie. Uh, documentary called Close to Vermeer. It's about the, the painter Vermeer and how we don't know anything about him, which is kind of crazy. Like we literally know nothing about him and just have like his art and people are obsessed with him because of that. It's a cool little documentary about him. Um, M3gan, also known as Megan, uh, Rylane <laughs> and Suzume. Nice. Yeah. Okay. How close was, what was at the top of that? Was Past Lives? Um, it's either Past Lives or Magic Mike's Last Dance. Close, close. Uh, but these okay. other ones I would say are in a tier above. Okay. So, and then the one did get knocked off the list last night. So I feel obligated to mention the big combo, a 1955 film noir. Um, it got bumped though. We're going to see by what soon. Uh, so number 10 for me is a movie called Ivy from 1947. Uh, it is also a film noir. And at this point, it's the highest ranked film noir on my list from this year. It's a genre I absolutely love. I like watching a bunch of film noirs each year. And this one to me, though, was the most unique and the one I've liked the most in a while. Um, a from just for its like feminine perspective, like it kind of it kind of had an old like trashy poppy novel feel to it, like movies that are about these um, the bourgeoisie and like how they live these kind of scandalous lives above everyone else. Or and this movie is all about somebody who wants to become one of those people. Um, and film noirs are like notable in that way, or like they're just about these down in their luck people who are kind of anti heroes because of their attitude about society and what they're fighting against. But like, really you find out like what's driving them is something deeper um, that represents America and like what drove them to get to this way. So like Ivy was to me, like the most unique I've seen in a while at handling that just from a female perspective and how it was about a woman who wanted to, you know, become an elitist. <laughs> she wanted to become a sophisticated, like, or a, uh, socialite what did i say <laughs> uh, sophisticated yeah who knows um but just wanted to become someone who she perceived to be important in society and how sad that is yeah it's i was just reading a little bit about it and it seems kind of fascinating thinking about like metaphor it's a 1947 movie and you think about that being kind of on the cusp of a lot of female independence movements mm -hmm. that are happening and this is a woman who, in the movie, it seems, she has a husband, she has somebody that she wants to be with, and then she also has a lover. Yeah. And she's enmeshed with these three men as she's trying to find her own way to a form of independence. Yeah, but the movie's cool and just how, like, it makes her a little bit unlovable. <laughs> like, that's an honest pursuit to have, but that's the cool thing about film noirs is, like, they push characters to the brink. And she's somebody who's just like, she tries poisoning her husband, who is like a super nice guy, like wants the best for her, but like he doesn't have money. So he's got to die. <laughs> <laughs> and she poisons him once. It doesn't quite kill him. And she just like, instead of feeling bad and thinking like, oh, like he didn't die, I can change. She just gives him more hot chocolate that has even more poison in it. And like the way that's drawn out and you just like kind of see it play out and watch her just slowly become a shittier person is... 
Probably my favorite parts of film noir. I love seeing that dark side. <laughs> it rises to the surface love as it. people are put in situations that poison them. Yes. Nice. Um, my number 10, my top 10, I had three in the my favorites category, and the rest were in the wow category. Is wow. So, my favorites is the top category, right? Yeah. Okay. My favorites is the top. And then wow are ones that I found very impressive, but they don't quite jump up to like a favorite level. Right, right. So it's about as high as praise as I can give without necessarily like, like I love it, but I didn't love it, you know? Right. Friend zoned. They're friend zoned movies. <laughs> uh, so at number 10 is Jawan which I had no idea what I was getting into mm-hmm. with Juwan. Uh It's a uh, Bollywood movie, and it stars Shah Rukh Khan, who's the like legend yeah. of Bollywood. And I had no idea. And it was funny because I was sitting in the theater, and I was the only person in the theater when the lights went down, and uh, an India guy walked in and saw me and kind of looked around and walked out of the theater, came back in and said, what movie are you here for? Uh. And I said, Jawan. And he's like, okay, you know, like, are you a Shah Rukh Khan fan? I was like, who? I had just yeah. no idea. And he kind of laughed and he's like the king. And I was like, nah, I, he's well known. And he laughed again and, <laughs> and sat down. <laughs> but I had no idea. I had never seen uh, Shah Rukh Khan in anything. SRK, you know, as they say. Uh-huh. And, I was so blown away by his screen presence and the command he had on screen. I understand why he's a legend in the industry. And then being on his social media afterwards is just all this positive interaction with fans and cheering people on. Yeah. And it just seems like a lovely person. Yeah. Who knows if there's deeper scandals that I'm missing or anything, but <laughs> I, it was kind of, cool finding out some of the drama like he had been the biggest box office success in bollywood and then his last few movies had fallen off and it was to the point where people are actually questioning like is his reign over is he done is he washed up and then this movie broke like all sorts of records it was a huge huge deal and it did well in america as well and it's a very different energy than something like rrr which I think is a reference point for a lot of Western audiences in right. terms of where Bollywood's at. But I, it was very fascinating in terms of its critiques of current uh, like political uh, issues that are going on in India. Um, and so that was pretty fascinating to get into and learn about that most of the things that they're highlighting as these social injustices that are brought on by the government and corporations are actually huge problems in India right now. So it's a very direct call out to the people, to the public, to the government, like a hugely political movie that's also very entertaining and empowering to the masses. So I was very impressed. And there's a twist in the movie that I had no idea. (laughs) I think in terms of like twists in films this year, it was the biggest surprise that I had. Nice. I like that. So a lot of fun. Uh, Highly recommended to anybody who's just looking for three hours of high octane drama. 
as somebody who likes M. Night Shyamalan movies would say, I like twists. So I look forward to that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you'd enjoy it. Cool. Um, okay, so number nine for me is I'm a movie I'm pretty sure is going to be on your list. So you can talk about it now or you can wait to talk about it. Fast X? Uh, it just missed the cut. Really? It came in at number 14. All right. Okay. Um, well, Fast X, I just watched it for the third time. Nice. Um, which isn't the most I've watched the movie this year, actually, and we'll find that out later. But <laughs> uh, I have enjoyed it every single time. I it, it, I guess that doesn't really sell it that well. I enjoyed it. But I, I guess more than anything, like even if I don't... I, I absolutely love the Fast and Furious movies that we've talked about on the show. And I do think the Fast and the Furious and Fast Five, like, those tower above the rest but this and fate of the furious like they're two completely different aesthetics but they're each doing something specific that i want this franchise to be doing in a very profound way with fate of the furious being like it's very cohesive like every element of its set pieces of like what's driving the characters like it is all um barreling towards like a central idea a core struggle with like trying to save Dom and all that and the fear of like expanding your family and what you do to sacrifice, like all of that like, just blends together really well and that it's very focused. And then there's something like fast X, which like, <laughs> I don't want to go as, as far to say like it's unfocused, but it's so crazy. Like it's so all over the place that like it kind of ends up being about everything um, that encompasses this family and what they've gone through. Like it almost feels like, a great season finale to a season of, of a television show. Like you've learned so much about each of these disparate parties. There's so many storylines to follow. And then they just kind of merge and coalesce in a beautiful way, like right at the end. That's what I really love about fast X is that it just kind of goes balls to the wall with that. And every scene is so felt and realized like it never slows down for a second that on top of just being entertaining because of that, it's just such a good, character study like i know all of these characters more than i did heading in in a way that something like a even fate of the furious doesn't do like it just kind of advances everybody a little bit in a way that um felt very special to me as a fast fan so i i have enjoyed watching this movie each of the three times i've watched it this year yeah i <laughs> that advancement i think is the thing that i felt the most that it really did feel like things were going places in a way that I didn't get from some of the other movies. Like the stakes were a little higher. Mm. I was getting a better insight to some of the characters. It wasn't just more of the same, but there was some freshness. I still can't get over the guy from Reacher uh, being oh, yeah. introduced in this movie. Is standing uh, in that I, room. I thought he had to have been part of a different movie at some point And that this wasn't our introduction to him him and uh yeah, what's larson brie larson yeah that and scene is a little only, wacko the only complaint <laughs> i have about this movie is how they just introduce those two characters as if we should know them and respect them and you're just like oh oh yeah sure of course of course yeah you know i loved them in the other movies yeah i agree with you and i think actually a big reason for it and i notice this good thing i watched this movie three times because i noticed this on my third watch <laughs> that and I said that to Lauren in the moment, she's like, oh, yeah, you're right. Is that scene happens right after um, the whole 
uh, Rome sequence where the ball's barreling towards uh, the, uh, what, where is it going? Uh, not the Louvre, the, what's the name of that place? Whatever, the the famous building it's going, <laughs> heading towards and about to blow up. Um, yeah. And it happens right after that scene. So super high intensity, super emotional, super cathartic that like they're able to stop it. And then like you cut to this like goofy <laughs> like room where I, I love when movies do this, when like someone is talking to like a screen of silhouettes and like they vote, like they're the board members, you know, but like, you don't see yeah. any of their faces. Like that's such a dumb, stupid, technologically advanced, goofy thing movies do. Um, like the, the feet, like I don't mind the scene itself. Like I think it's kind of fun in a cartoonish way that fits with a lot of the movie. But when you put it right after the Rome sequence and then what follows the Brie Larson uh, Reacher experience uh, scene is you cut to Vin Diesel then like looking over Rome and Helen Mirren walks up to him and gives a speech about like, you got to run like you can't save everybody. Like, it's so emotional and well done that like they sandwich this scene here. Like could they not find a spot? Spot for the scene or something that made it make more sense it it just doesn't fit emotionally yeah it kind of felt like i was getting pulled away each time yeah so i also that guy's fine but i don't know if he's right for the fast movies no i he definitely felt like the weakest part to me which i was just seeing a lot of praise for him on twitter about reacher and being like he elevates everything and i was like i've just seen him in the one thing and <laughs> He seemed like cool, but I didn't feel like he was adding. You know, he made me actually appreciate Scott Eastwood a little bit more. Somebody who at first I was kind of iffy about, but over time have grown to like a little more. And then like in this movie, the scenes he has compared to that guy, I'm kind of like, oh man, he's bringing the energy I want to these movies. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So Hmm. anyway. But the ending, the that final, where Fast X leaves off. I'm so excited for the next one. Love it. Yeah. Uh, my number nine is uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. <laughs> A movie I will never watch unless you make me. No? Why? Well, you can make me do it on the show if you want. Yeah. Did you ever watch? Uh... Oh, sorry, sorry. I thought you meant the other Spider-Man movie. No, no, no. Oh, of course. Yeah. No, I, I like the cartoon. Oh, I, I like the... Um... Across the or into the Spider Verse, into the Spider Verse, yeah, yeah. So across the Spider Verse, you haven't For seen sure. across the Spider Verse. I have not watched it yet. I know it's on Netflix, oh. so I'll, I'm gonna watch it soon. Yeah, um, it's cool. It still suffers from some of the, you know, like the middle part of a trilogy. It's always kind of incomplete in some ways, which frustrates people. Mm. So it has that issue going on where it's mostly a setup for the finale, um, which. I did knock at some points for that in terms of my like overall rankings, but in terms of 2023 movies, it remains pretty high just because it's such an epic. Um, the amount that it's introducing and going for, the dynamic scenes that it has, it's certainly a level up from the first one in terms of just the scope and scale, but you do wonder at times if it's as like if it has the magic of the first one. Right. There are also a few scenes that I think are genuinely like dumb. There's one in the end in particular uh, where Gwen has a conversation and it's just like, that was not necessary. (sighs) And the way that the people respond to the conversation is not (laughs) like believable in any way, shape or form. Uh Um, 
so that was it had like a few moments like that but it had another like cool twist um it's good and it sets up the next one that i'm like incredibly frothing at the mouth for it but it's gonna be years until we actually get it (laughs) well not if everybody's working 80 hour days or 80 hour weeks (laughs) yeah right (laughs) uh yeah no i'm i'm excited about that i do enjoy the first one although i just don't think I've ever liked it as much as everyone else seems to like it. So it does make me wonder how much I love the next one, considering it was at one point the highest rated movie on Letterboxd. Like, people like it that much. So I'm kind of like, eh, I guess I'm never going to get to that point, am I? But. Yeah, that surprised me. Um, but I think we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, looking forward to that. Number eight for me. I, this list is just full of movies. <laughs> nobody knows and we'll probably know ever go watch but the next one for me is i guess a big deal to people who like these kinds of movies like horror especially just uh kind of like gothic horror like really extravagant stylistic ones it's called blood for dracula um 1974 udo kier plays dracula which is a bomb ass move like let him play dracula that's a great idea um and Paul Morrissey directed it. He also made like Flesh for Frankenstein. These movies are kind of sisters, actually, in how they they're very like sexy horror movies, monster movies. <laughs> like it's Dracula and Frankenstein's movies where they fuck. <laughs> it's just like I don't know. There's something about that aesthetic that I had just never really seen before, and it felt so. Um, it just was an aesthetic I had never really seen before. I, I feel like that's mostly it. Like, it's just like almost a, a higher level adult film in a way where you're like, you're watching these very sexualized situations, especially in a movie where like vampires seduce women, you know, they can like put these spells on them and completely change them. And there's a way of the movies like playing with that formula while also like commenting on it and commenting on like femininity and the the role just gender politics in general like it was just such a smart movie in that way it felt very modern and how it was attacking all of these issues and i mean the movie it, it existed in modern times back in 1974 so it really was commenting on those stuff actively um it was just all around a really smart and well done movie with a really unique aesthetic that i just i kind of fell for as i was watching it i just you, you have those moments where you're like oh my gosh i'm experiencing something i've never experienced before Nice. I mean, that sounds unique in terms of tone versus where modern horror is at with a lot of these iconic characters. Right. It's not something that you're getting like Dracula and Frankenstein. Voyage of the Demeter. Yeah. They're not doing too well right now in terms of the, the content that we get. So diving into some of these like little or known films that feature them and feature unique takes on them. Yeah. I mean, seems like a, a great way to spend a weekend. Yeah, it was awesome. I, I remember watching that. Um, There was a week period where Lauren was gone and there was one day where Moira was being watched. So like there were just, so there were full days I had to myself. There was like one full day I had to myself and then I had all the nights to myself and um, I was able to just sit down and watch like whatever I wanted, like 
you know, usually I got to like, if I'm watching a movie with my wife, like there are just certain movies I'm not going to watch. Like I'm probably not going to watch Blood for Dracula. But this week I watched a lot of movies like this that I'd always been wanting to watch. And uh, yeah, fond memories of that week. Nice. Um, My number eight, I have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. Oh, yeah. Another one people love. Yeah, it's really i like i thought that had more of the magic of into the spider-verse than across the spider-verse had it just was charming dynamic it felt fresh it was reimagining these characters for a new generation in a way that worked uh much better than sorry travis michael bay (laughs) accomplished with it right really shitting on michael bay this episode yeah yeah, who knew that was going to come in? How original. Blaz- blazing on Michael Bay. Um, <laughs> but it's just start to finish. I was so impressed and engaged and enamored with the choices they were making, the dialogue, the characters. It was fun. It gets maybe a little too cartoonish in some of the like finale and how they're defeating the final boss. But overall handled a lot of it in a very like cool way nice yeah it um and it's all all the characters are voiced by kid actors right yeah that that was awesome too like these kid actors who just do a phenomenal job like i i feel like they deserve award nominations (laughs) in a way that they're not getting more so than uh, like a few of the award nominees i'm like they were good but did, did you listen to these kids voice yeah. acting in mutant ma'am it also makes it feel more like a cartoon right like a saturday morning kind of cartoon where not that i mean i'm sure there are plenty of adults who have voiced who voiced characters on those shows but it is something i think about about spider-man into the spider-verse and all that like these are all like adults talking for kids like there's something about it that doesn't feel authentic I think the way that that came up the most, just in terms of that intrinsic, you may not realize that it's happening until, you know, a discussion like this comes up, is in the difference between them and the main villain. Oh, yeah. And the difference in size, the difference in experience, the difference in just what they're up against, because they are kids, right? It's not just an adult pretending to be someone younger and you still feel like a little bit of the maturity in their voice. You have these kids literally talking to an adult who is gruff and intense and talking down to them. It somehow magnifies the physical differences between the characters. I like that. Yeah. Cool. So that's a highly recommended as well. Nice. All right, number seventy, number seven for me. I almost said number seventy. Number seven for me um, is a movie from nineteen thirty-two, which I recently was speaking with my brother-in-law, who's about five years younger than me. And when I talked about watching a movie that's this old, maybe even older than like nineteen sixty, he he just gave this air of like I would never watch that. Like I would never watch a movie that old. And I, I feel like that might reflect like a long, a larger attitude. Like we're past this guys. Like nothing that was made in 1932 could actually be good. Um, I'm going to talk from the other side of that as somebody who watches a lot of movies that I, I felt 
this movie. It's called The Old Dark House. It's it's semi-famous. It's a revered horror movie, but I just never seen it. To me, this felt fresh in a way that like I all I can do is think about horror movies that are made these days and what they're commenting on and how well developed their characters are. Like to me, the old dark house just like outdoes all of them. Really cool stylistic movie. It's got that old timey style where like it uses shadows a lot. <laughs> like there's even like a puppet show that happens at one point and it's meant to evoke fear and it's and it's only scary in a very like cartoonish way. Like it's not scary at all, but because the characters are so scared that because they're so scared you're into it, you know? Uh it's just very playful in that way with the formula. And all of the characters are just, all the actors are incredible and they're all playing the characters so well that I, I just felt very attached to them and their story in a way that it just made me think of a lot of modern horror movies that are more cynical, try to be darker and grimmer in an attempt to make me side of the characters a little bit more. And I feel like it ends up working against those movies a lot of the time. It just felt like I haven't seen a fun, playful horror movie in a while. Maybe like something like Megan actually that came out this year that I liked a lot. Um, no does a little bit <laughs> but um yeah I, I maybe i just crave a movie like that a little bit and i'm a little sick of the the cynical horror mo modern horror movies so it, for whatever reason the old dark house really connected and i i think about that movie all the time like i'm and it's short <laughs> i love when movies are short i don't know all around it was a win nice okay Man, I feel like this is an education and like you are curating <laughs> older movies for people who do not have the patience to go and discover some of these for themselves. Yeah, there's just, uh, you know, watched a lot of old movies this year, but these are the ones that stood out. <laughs> uh, number seven for me is Bottoms. Oh, great. Yeah, I, it, I found it charming, fascinating endearing i was cracking up like i think this is the closest we've had to an heir to super bad yeah since super bad and i know people were saying that about book smart oh well, good boys yeah book smart yeah book smart was in that vein but i didn't find book smart all that i would say it's a different movie than super bad it's it's going yeah. for something else yeah it was a little smaller to me like a little slick it felt a little more indie to me and like mm -hmm. bottoms is a very indie movie but for some reason it just had that super bad yeah it has like more presence and ceiling yeah a little more confidence a little more size to it and i thought it i thought it nailed everything i know that there are people that think the ending goes a little too far or who just didn't the pineapple uh all the the fight yeah, mostly oh, just the that's, fighting. that's the best part of the movie. I know. I thought that was amazing. Like, yeah, go to that place. Absolutely. So, I don't know. I, I think it's awesome. I am a little nervous to rewatch it because I'm like, well, I love it as much on rewatch as I did on the first watch. But having just the one watch, it goes in at number seven. You just made me think because Lauren and I are trying to think of a movie to watch. We should definitely watch that tonight. Watch it. Yeah. Let me know how the second viewing yeah. is. Um, so number six for me, this is the movie I watched last night, Chris. So okay. there was a lot of anticipation built up for this and now I'm, I'm delivering. Here we go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a movie called Ride Lonesome. It is a Western. So once again, anybody who would want to roll their eyes at that or walk out of the room, go for it. Um, to me, Westerns are, they've become 
like this and horror movies have like sort of become my favorite. I would say those are my genres of like 2023. The ones I really dove into a little bit more and found my place and their aesthetic and like what it means to me. And Westerns have just been huge for me this year. And, and that I've, I've spent a lot more time reading books and like trying to learn more about the country. I'm even like, I've been even using my Canopy account to watch this lecture series on the history of America, which is like the most boring thing I've ever said out loud wow. about myself. Wow. But like, I've just been very curious and feel like I can, maybe it's because I'm, I'm having kids now, but thinking more and more about how I want to know the world a little bit better and like try to be able to put a frame around it, try to f develop a narrative about it that I can then use for myself and reflect out from myself and portray to my kids. And, and I just, it, it, and within all that movies have been a big part of it and uh, how they basically seeing how these artists view America and like what they want to say about the world and like the way things are going. And Westerns are just really fascinating in that aspect because they represent a time when there was just extreme change in America moving away from the vast open space of the West to like cities and bustling and industry. It's, it's just always really interesting how it comments on that subject and how people are sort of being left behind because of that and how all these ideals and personalities are becoming things of the past. And it just feels like every single Western is dealing with that. Um, and ride lonesome just, did it in the most fascinating way and on 4k i was texting about this with chris and our friend jordan last night that the scenes like 4k is already pretty awesome and i think specifically with westerns it's even greater this this box set that criterion put out of westerns it's the only westerns really that i know of that are on 4k and they put out five of them which is incredible but to see these movies and see just what they it feels like you're seeing them for the first time like you're really discovering like what look they were going for especially something like ride lonesome which is shot in cinemascope like it's it's got a presence and a feel to it and it just looks so real and the colors are so cool how they bounce off each other these these more like muted brownish colors you know it's just so incredible and it's specifically the scenes at night where like shadows are falling over everything and like in 4k the blacks are blacker so like there's just blackness over people's face while they're talking and it and it feels like that image is communicating the message of Westerns even more. Like it's just so cool how it all came together and Ride Lonesome to me was just something that it really stuck out and how well it was handling all of those issues, explained all of them through really interesting characters that in 72 minutes this movie does this, like builds all of these incredible characters in an incredible way, gives them such foundation and ends up commenting on so much because of it all. It's it was just an amazing experience. I feel like I was looking up just the the start of the plot, uh -huh. and it says Ben Brigade captures Billy John, who is wanted for murder. Billy instructs Charlie, a member of his gang, to notify his brother Frank, a notorious outlaw, that he has been apprehended. I feel like that plot point has been used a few times in things that I've watched. Yeah, right. And I wonder if it originates with Ride Lonesome. I, would I love feel that. like there's there's even like not a Bugs Bunny cartoon, but something similar to that that uses that concept. <laughs> like some Looney Tunes uh, one that takes that where it's like the brother trying to come and find yeah. the one that's been captured. 
it is such a movie thing to do. Like the only way I can get to this guy is to steal this other guy and have him come after me. Like, you know, you could just go to the guy. <laughs> you could, but but no, that's not a that's not a movie plot. Like that's why we come. That's why we show up. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Uh, at number six for me, I have Barbie. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, a movie I also really liked. Yeah, I it's still hung up there as just I saw it twice in theaters. I was so happy with the first viewing i was excited to go see the second time and really enjoyed it the second time i it comes in i think a little lower the other ones it it's more of like the ceiling like the other ones just feel a little bigger to me right and like they're going for more doing more even if i think i on fun factor alone barbie was probably the one that i enjoyed the most in terms of just like I left the theater purely entertained and happy with that, but that's not the end all be all of the rankings for right. me. So uh, it comes in at number six at that end, but I'm, I'm happy. It's as beloved as it is. I'm sad to see the inevitable pushback of people trying to tear it down and be like, it's actually not that good. It's actually not that thoughtful. It's like, it is like, is it perfect? No, but like, yeah, you're just being contrarian at this point. It's definitely got blemishes, and for that reason, it does feel a little held back. Um, I, and I kind of agree with you that I think what I like most about it is that it's entertaining, which isn't, like, the most sophisticated of praise. Like, sometimes I, when I think of its message, like, it starts to feel a little bit too much like a message movie, and that it's just about something bigger than the movie itself. Um, but still, because it's so entertaining, because it's so well done, because the actors are all so good that... I mean, it's it's hard to find too many faults with it. Right. And you're just like, okay, that was that was fun. Yeah. I mean, everything with... I mean, I know the movie's about Barbie, but like everything Frank Gosling is... Mwah. <laughs> Chef's kiss. <laughs> <laughs> he did steal the show. I loved it. Um, okay. All right. Number five for me, 1962. Stop, Chris. Put yourself in 1962. Okay. okay, we're there. Um, now that we're there, a new movie called The Miracle Worker comes out. Do you know this movie? No. It's, um, I, as I think about it, no, this couldn't have been it. Because I remember in school, we watched a Helen Keller movie, but I feel like it was like a made-for-TV kind of movie. And The Miracle Worker is about Helen Keller and, oh, God, I'm blinking on the woman um, Annie Sullivan, the woman who was uh, coaching Helen Keller and teaching her sign language, uh, played by Anne, pa- <laughs> Anne Bancroft, and who's just awesome, a legendary actress. And the movie uh, directed by, uh, God, why am I, Arthur Penn, I'm just like blanking on this movie completely, um, who did lots of great movies like Bonnie and Clyde and Night Moves. Um, he... he makes this movie that's about Annie Sullivan coaching Helen Car- Helen Keller and trying to like it, it's just it was an incredible movie to me because the story is so simple like we know the story already and we know how difficult it was for Annie Sullivan to get through to Helen Keller and to achieve the ability to teach her sign language but the way the movie goes about it the way Arthur Penn just films these two together and gives them the space to work together it just felt so real 
in a way and not real that I in a way I need movies to feel authentic like I want movies to still feel like movies in a sense but it felt real and that I it, it felt like an honest interaction between two people and how difficult how gargantuan of a task this was for her to teach Helen Keller these things just the way it's acted in the space he gives them the 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 whole aesthetic that he develops with this dynamic between these two people it just it made me cry like eight times <laughs> like it's one thing to like the story's sad like it's probably gonna make me cry but like the level on which it's being filmed and portrayed and conveyed um it just felt so special to me in a way i'm not used to with movies and had a profound emotional impact on me so this one gets ranked that highly on the list because it made me cry so much i both Anne Bancroft and Patty Duke won yeah. the Oscar for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress. Yeah. Patty Duke was only 16. It's crazy. Yeah, she was the youngest Oscar winner. Yeah, at the time. Mm-hmm. I would imagine Anne Paquin would have been younger. Yeah. Yep, yep. She was 13, I think. Yeah, she must have been really young. Uh, okay, that sounds cool i mean it seems different like i think a movie so many people go for like the fantastic like i i want the the spectacle or i want something i've never seen before just to get something that's a lot more grounded and a lot more realistic making the list and showing just how good that can be yeah it's it's an incredible movie that like the whole movie feels like it's taken a deep breath like you're anticipating, anticipating, and at the very end, when like the catharsis is achieved, like letting out that breath, the fresh air, like oh my god, we did it! It's one of the like that movie does that <laughs> aesthetic the best. Nice. Uh, number five, I have Killers of the Flower Moon. Nice. Which I didn't know I you liked little, it that much. I feel a little torn on it. That's it's something where I'm putting it at number five because I I respect how much it does well and right like i think it's the best cinematography scorsese has had in any of his movies like visually it's so much more of a level up to me Mm -hmm. than it's like i like the style of a lot of other scorsese movies but i've never felt like his actual uh visual like the cinematography the the actual just like artistic quality of the image itself has always been like that high mm-hmm. in the same way that you would get from a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Right. I would say, but he's always had a lot of like flair and technical, like technically fascinating things and how he would use crane shots or draw out a scene or just the amount of things that are happening in a scene. So it's not like he's without visual flair. It's just the actual like painterly quality. Mm hmm of the images and in this he has that quality which was so astounding to me uh to see him have that aspect finally come into his filmography and be so well done and so powerful so in some ways it's like peak scorsese to me um but at the same time it's a little more familiar as well Mm -hmm. and i think the story is important especially in letting us know not only that this happened and codifying it in people's minds, but making them aware of like the plight that native Americans still face in this country and the injustices that they face. Like there's a social message that I think makes this movie important as well. And the final few minutes, the way that Scorsese chooses to end it 
that breaks the fourth wall a little bit and kind of, I think, gets into the meta aspects in a much simpler and a much more powerful way than what Asteroid City did, I think is one of the most interesting choices that Scorsese has made in his career. So there are a lot of things going for this movie. It's just also, I think, kind of a very obvious story told in a very long way. Like You know who's doing everything. So there's no real tension the whole time. It's just a question of, are they going to be stopped? Which is fascinating to see. It's not like I'm saying that was badly handled. It's just, I kind of kept waiting for something more to happen and nothing more ever did. Yeah. So what we get is very well done, but it just felt a little, eh, Yeah. (laughs) to me in terms of how powerful it went or how big it went. And DiCaprio, I think at times, was a little indulgent in some of his scenes and some of the choices that he made um, to where, like, I didn't feel like he was a strong part of the movie. Yeah. Uh, De Niro kind of outacted him in a lot of ways and Lily Gladstone as well. I also didn't like how relegated Lily Gladstone was to just being sick in bed for so much of the movie, Uh which she was sick in the actual story but it felt like they didn't necessarily give her character enough to do and the way in which she's not mad at Ernest when she finds out what he was doing to her family and is willing to at times forgive him was also very strange and is not in the book Mm -hmm. it kind of makes her seem like it makes her seem less, I don't know, thoughtful that she's willing to forgive this guy that essentially murdered her entire right. family in a way that's unbelievable. Yeah. Like, you're like, that's the reaction. That's her reaction. That can't be her reaction. And it wasn't her reaction. In real life, <laughs> she was very disgusted. Yeah. <laughs> so the fact that the movie, just how they handled her character didn't quite hit for me in the way that I think it should had should have yeah to the point where I feel like I understand some of the the criticisms or the way in which uh, a lot of um, Native American voices have said that they have issues with the movie and the presentation yeah. of the movie uh, that makes sense to me yeah if it's hurting the emotion of your movie and the message and like what all of it meant like I think that's a big deal to undercut a character and what actually happened and the implications of what all these actions had you know yeah they just they make her so passive and then the time where you want her to finally be active she's not yeah and that's not because that's how the story went Hmm. it's just because of a choice that they made it would be like if in oppenheimer you never got the the kitty scene where she tears everybody apart in the the hearing yeah like you get that payoff you just i don't think you ever necessarily got the payoff for uh lily gladstone's character here and it's awesome how they do that scene in oppenheimer is it (laughs) (laughs) i tried to lay on the sarcasm there yeah um well yeah that's i'm still excited to watch it uh not excited to dedicate four hours to it how long is this fucking movie it's like 240 oh really oh okay 250 maybe it's three no no it's three three 
It's three and a half. Okay, three and a half. Sorry. That's a lot. So yeah. I don't know when that's going to happen, but yeah, maybe it won't. <laughs> I mean, it, I think it's worth watching. It's doing a lot of interesting things. It's just when we're talking about like the criticisms that we bring into talking about like the best stuff and that yeah, yeah, difference yeah. in quality between the best, I think there's more to nitpick here. If you're three hours and 30 minutes long, you better be approaching Lawrence of Arabia levels. So that's all I'm going to say. S- still have to watch that. Um, do you have the 4K? Uh, I do, I do. Oh, Chris, you got to watch it. Oh. It's incredible. Um, I know. Number four for me is my highest ranked 2023 movie. It is a little movie called Knock at the Cabin. Oh, yeah. And it's a movie that I, I feel like as I get further and further away from it, like I just like it more than anybody else does, <laughs> which is fine. Um, I think even people who love In Night Shyamalan like wouldn't necessarily designate it as like one of his best works, but... It's probably my favorite Shyamalan so far, and I really like Signs and The Sixth Sense. And uh, actually, I really want to watch Unbreakable again because I just watched some YouTube video on it. I should send this to you, or maybe I did send it to you. Um, but it was really cool how it broke down what the movie's doing. I was like, man, I need to watch this movie. Um, but yeah, uh, Knock at the Cabin, I just really connected with it. I think a big part of that has to do with I recently had a daughter, and this is like a daddy daughter movie which is like i can feel myself like oh i'm gonna like love movies like this for the rest of my life um but beyond that i just felt so connected to all of the characters especially the three main characters and what they're going through and what they're fighting against and how this grand like apocalypse that is hitting the world is internalized through them and it 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 made me think of all apocalypse movies that way if like that's the way we're supposed to be viewing them is that like it's not that the world's ending it's that your world's ending and that's kind of what this family is struggling with what these two dads are struggling with um their sense of self is being shattered and they're kind of at a crossroads for like if they want to improve if they want to create a better future for their daughter like this decision needs to be made and i just felt the movie handled that in such an emotionally honest way that it never felt it had like the the heightened style of m night Shyamalan movie but also just had that very intimate um, human, the human connection feel that something like science has or the sixth sense has just to a higher level. Like I just really connected these characters a little bit more in what their situation was and what they were going through. I could find myself in these characters a lot. Um, and I just felt so drawn to them and their story um, in a movie that isn't too long, like, oh, it doesn't overstay its welcome, which is what a lot of in that Shyamalan movies end up doing. Like, he's just very efficient with it, and it's impactful in a, that shorter amount of time in a way that I just, I don't know. It, and it was the first movie I'd seen in theaters, I think, in a while. I, I almost wanted to say since I had my daughter. Maybe it was, actually, I'm thinking about it. There was just something about the theater experience, too, that was just awesome and at a really special time in this movie when I watched it. Good. Yeah, I remember how much you talked about it impacting you when you first saw it. So Yeah. That held up. Yeah. Um I haven't rewatched it, but <laughs> I uh I imagine that I'm always just gonna have that special connection with it. Yeah. It, it's a right movie at the right time. Yes, that kind of thing. Um, number four for me, I have Anatomy of a Fall. Oh yeah, gosh, I keep forgetting about that movie. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating one. I, on the one hand, I don't think it's quite as great 
as everybody is saying it is. I mean, I have it at number four. <laughs> so it's yeah. it's very good, but it's small in ways that you don't expect and very detailed. So it's it's a long movie, but it's very long because it's getting into the details of everything that happened. So there's actually not all that much that happens. There's actually not that many characters. It's not an epic in some of the ways that, you know, Oppenheimer or Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, those movies are. It's a lot more intimate and a lot more um, talky Mm -hmm. than those. But it does a fascinating thing in that it uses the the murder that's happening in the court trial that's happening about this person. And you don't know if they're guilty or not guilty. So you're in real time with a lot of the, the people in the court trying to figure out how you feel about it. But it is really an examination of the relationship between uh, reality and fiction. Right. And the main character who's at the center of everything is an author and they keep asking her, you know, you use a lot of reality in your fiction. How much of that is actually true? How much of your fiction is based on real life? And you see that interplay then of the court hearing being how much does fiction affect real life as people are telling different versions of this story and the people just have to believe what is a fiction mm-hmm. and decide if it's the truth or not. So it's a very uh, cool way of going about this idea of exploring the the relationship between fiction and reality and the way one influences the other in art and the way the other influences um, in real life. That sounds cool. It, it It's funny because it does sound a little bit like what a lot of courtroom movies do, like uh, like playing with the truth and like who you believe and like the nature of narratives and but it, it sounds like if anatomy of a fall is impacting you in this way and speaking to you in that way it must do it on a just transcend that a little bit and do it on a different level yeah it's because it's so much more implicit it has a couple explicit moments of it but it's so much the subtext mm-hmm. that you're fascinated of just what's happening in the courtroom itself but you know that it is making an artistic statement through all of this uh, as opposed to something that's maybe more of a courtroom drama that is just dealing with fiction and reality, but is it necessarily making an artistic meditation on it, um, but is more just entertainment value? I- I'm just going back to thinking of something like A Few Good Men or Primal Fear mm-hmm. um, that are just a little bit more plot driven yeah Hmm. but it has like some great cinematography it has a very thoughtful ending that you have to really kind of ask yourself what you would do in such a situation and what you believe so it's a it's a cool one nice i might watch it at some point but isn't it like two and a half hours long yeah we'll see uh, <laughs> number three for me is a movie I believe I talked about last week in this podcast, a movie called Demons 2. Oh, yeah. From 1986, directed by Lamberto Vava. To me, th- so these top three movies, like, I, every movie in this list I really love. And 
they're all in the so the way my categories go is the very top is essential and the next category is legendary and these have all been legendary movies but these three are like the closest that i've come to essential this year like movies that really impacted me and demons 2 just did in um the as i've talked about many times in this podcast it is i love meta movies and just because it's i feel so involved in it because of that and what the movie's commenting on is actually something like i'm a part of there's just something about that relationship that makes it just makes the art all the more impactful for me and and i feel a connection to a movie especially when it's done well when it's using this kind of um this frame and this movie i i saw it um i visited my friend and whenever i visit him we always watch this show called joe bob's drive-in and it's a show that happens on shutter i think it's on like amc plus now actually it, it moved but it was a show that was on shutter for a while and this guy joe bob who's just like the super knowledgeable um completely unpretentious guy who knows a shitload about movies and he just tells you like so much <laughs> he gives you all this information about these movies you're going to watch as part of the drive-in it's a it's always a double feature and he always picks most of the time he's picking like horror movies or they're like exploitation movies that aren't as popular or maybe you've never heard of and he's always just trying to highlight movies that um don't get enough love like he actually had an episode where he did the double bill was perfect blue and mad god so the goal was to highlight these animated horror movies or thrillers or whatever um so this episode was demons 2 and oh god what was the other movie it doesn't matter because demons 2 was all that mattered um <laughs> it was just like it was this movie it's famous because the movie that came out before it demons um also directed by lamberto bava um and had help in its craft from dario argento who is maybe the most famous giallo director Giallo is a type of Italian horror movie that's very stylized and it's just notable for how and the way in which it's stylized. Um, and it this first Demons movie came out and it was like a huge hit. Like it's a completely ridiculous movie and it's totally meta. It's about all these people that go see a movie in a movie theater and these demons um, like I don't know. Actually, I don't remember how it works. Basically, all these demons come out from behind the screen and then like flood into the theater and killing everybody in the theater. And it's this kind of commentary on uh, these characters we have in movies and how we watch them die and what our relationship is with those characters and like really what it means and all that stuff. Um, in a way that as I'm saying that I'm, I'm kind of realizing that the first demons movie was a little bit plain in that way. Like it's an awesome movie, but the commentary is a little just like it's just sitting there and you get it where I felt Demons 2 really ramped it up a notch because it came out the very next year and it only came out because like the studio was like you have to make another Demons like people love this formula just do it again and they kind of repeat exactly what the movie was but with a little twist of like the movie is about how the first movie came out and had this impact and everybody was like craving it and these demons were released through the movie because of it. <laughs> and then the demons like escape into the world. And you watch this like the raid style movie where these people are stuck in a building and these demons are like trapping them from within as they're trying to get out. It's just so 
cool conceptually what they're doing with the formula and our relationship with, I guess, sequels and like big movies, movies that are supposed to have an impact. Um, and at, on top of that, just the way it's filmed, like I just, it's the most impressive uh, practical effects work I've maybe ever seen in a movie. Like I was just so blown away by like how people were being killed and how these demons are being born out of people. <laughs> like it was just, it was fucking nuts. Um, so just all around, just a very incredible experience from both an entertainment standpoint and just like, it felt smart. Like it felt like it had something to say. It, it, it had um, agency in that way. Nice. It's the concept seems really cool and having that meta aspect to it definitely adds yeah <laughs> I think to our entertainment or enjoyment of movies so that's a that's a cool function. Yeah. I definitely want to check them out given how into them you are. Demons 2. Demons 2. <laughs> uh number 3 I have Past Lives. Oh yeah. Which I think could easily my number one uh, we're in the favorites now so i had anatomy of the fall at the top of the wow category and now we're in the three that have made the favorites list mm. past lives is just in terms of indie movies i think it's just the style that i really like because you know there's not much in the way of budget right so they're trying to do a lot with a little but this movie has such a sense of place uh, in the various countries that you're in, has such a sense of time as you're in different periods of these characters' lives. So I really feel movement from start to finish and not just we're stuck in one place or one situation, Asteroid City, which isn't necessarily (laughs) a bad thing in and of itself, but I tend to like stories more that unfold Mm-hmm. And you get to see the not just the action and the reaction, but consequences of time periods and events. I think that's very fascinating. So I tend to really like movies that cover a lot of ground in that way. And the emotional depths that Past Lives goes to and the way that it's not just the love triangle, which I really enjoyed that aspect of it and seeing just how fascinating uh, the two men are that this woman finds herself Mm -hmm. in love with in her life, like the loves of her life. But exploring that idea that you do only have one life where you can make these choices and you have to kind of accept when you've made a choice. And that illustration of, you know, two roads diverged in a yellow wood is so well done and so beautiful and the actual core aspects that it's looking at in terms of accepting who we've become and where we're at in our life and moving forward in that way i thought was just phenomenal so yeah very uh very happy with this movie really enjoyed watching this one um it had a really profound impact to my wife like i was crying at the end but like i'm pretty sure she was crying pretty hard (laughs) like i feel like that move the movie has that kind of impact on people and i think what really heightens it is all the stuff you're describing and you know these two roads you can find yourself going down like at the version the roads and picking like thinking about what your life could have been or where your life could go if you do this like it's especially impactful because it is an immigrant story it felt it felt elevated a little bit because of that and how it wasn't just like choosing between two lives 
like she literally had a past life. She she lived somewhere else where the rules were different and people were different. And it's having to choose between those two roads when like it literally is two different worlds. Um, it just made the movie feel. I don't know. It, it had the it had a kind of impact that I feel like a, a movie just like it that was framed in a different way couldn't quite have, you know? Yep. Agreed. Agreed. So good movie. Um, number two for me. It was last week's podcast, Chris. Oh, House of Jack. The Bill. House of Jack built. This is the closest anything came this year to being like, oh, this is. Um, be- besides my number one, this was the next one that were that came close to being like, oh, this is an essential movie in my life that I always have to have. Number one is that, but this is like, I feel like if I watch the House of Jack built again and I write about it, it could get to that point. But it is on this level of, I really, really connect to it. Um, again, as a meta movie, but beyond like, it's not just meta in terms of movies. It's meta in terms of art and creation and the kind of life you're building, this like grand piece of art you're creating. Um, it just felt bigger in that way to me. And that I could see myself a little bit more, which is crazy to say, I could see myself in this serial killer killer care, <laughs> serial killer uh, character, but I kind of could. I could see myself in Jack and what he's struggling with and um, the darker side that Lars von Trier is experience, uh, exploring both in himself, but also just trying to reflect back to the viewer and the world in general and the rhythms, the ebbs and flows we all go through, like the ways we feel pulled towards that dark side and... Um, it, it's just such an, ing- I mean, we talked about it ad nauseum last week, so I don't want to go into it too much, but just in terms of like the impact that had on me, like I just really felt that like it, it had a, it felt like it meant more to me it, as it's an experience. Like, of course, like the art, the way it's filmed, like it's all great, but it just, the way it coalesces into something bigger than that and to something like you experience and becomes part of you. Um, it just, that kind of viewing doesn't happen. It happens like two or three times a year for me as we're looking at right now. So it's, it's, it felt really special in that way. And that it's a movie I can't wait to like keep watching and keep understanding more and more. It, it definitely feels like one of those movies that punches you in the face when you first watch it. And then over time you, it rewards rewatches as you kind of grasp more of what it's trying to say how it's trying to say it. Uh, it feels like a masterwork in that way right yeah agreed mm. yeah it's i'm gonna be curious when i go back because it is one that you definitely have to have that rewatch <laughs> yeah that's how i, I felt yeah uh speaking of ones that deserve rewatches uh my number two is Bo is afraid all right which I feel like is similar to the house that Jack built in terms of just being this monstrosity Mm -hmm. of a movie that is really exploring a lot of different dynamics of, I mean, in house of Jack built it's art and the relationship that we have with art and thus this relationship that we have with ourselves and Bo is afraid It's an Ari Aster movie, which I know puts you on edge, but (laughs) puts me on the edge. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Hereditary is about grief in a very negative way, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, When grief wins. Sure. 
And then Midsummer is about grief, but despite having what could be read as a cynical ending, it is relative to Ari Aster kind of a, a positive I flip that, on yeah. what it means to make it through grief. Um, Bo is Afraid is, I think, Ari Aster's actual first movie in a way of getting out of genre and getting into actual literary exploration of a topic. Cool. So I think it makes Midsummer and Hereditary almost look like exercises of him getting used to the medium and getting used to what he's trying to say. And then Bo is Afraid is him really just ramping everything up to the next level and exploding outwards in terms of just the vision that he has, the amount that he's talking about. And it still comes back to grief, but there's so much more nuance to the discussion and conversation and the layers of grief that he's exploring and what causes it. And what elevates it is that when you look at Hereditary, it's such a a small movie, right? you really only have the sense of what's happening in the family. And there's a few things with the kids in school and the cult, but really it's just the family and the house that they're in. Midsummer, it's the small community that they go to, but that's really your sense of scope for the world. Bo is afraid it's the relationship that people have with society and the way in which our grief causes us to interact with society and the way that society causes our grief yeah it's very fascinating to have that level and that layer in there that was completely missing from Ari Aster's previous works so you have this more macro discussion about the world and critique of the world and the way in which we fit in it and the way in which it impacts us while also having this very real exploration of grief and the different pockets and the way it manifests and the silver linings and the, I thought it was pretty phenomenal. Yeah. I like the way Uh, you describe it. (laughs) Yeah. All the different places it goes, it doesn't feel, it's not an Ari Aster movie in the way that we've known Ari Aster. Okay. I definitely like like that. If you were to show me this and ask me who made it, I would never guess that it was him. Okay. Um, it feels a lot more like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie to me in terms of just the the <laughs> the hugeness of it all and the the multifaceted nature of it. So he's definitely transcending his previous work with this, but it's also a very difficult movie. Uh, it's bizarre. It is kind of jarring and shocking. There are some extreme excessive choices where you're like they really put that in this movie (laughs) this is something that's happening right now this isn't a dream this is this is something that's happening right now so it gets a little unhinged as well which is kind of house that jack built um i think they have very similar energies despite being like very different topics and subject matter i'm still not sure that you would like bo is afraid (laughs) but it might be more up your alley Hmm. than anything else that Ari Aster's done. Well, I definitely like the way you talk about how, how the movie handles grief. Um, and I'll be talking about this a little bit more with my number one movie, but to me, that is maybe the most annoying thing about modern horror movies at this point is like 
they all feel like they're about grief. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's infuriating. Yeah. But like, and they all start to feel just a little bit familiar in that way where like I, it makes me realize just how banal the message is sometimes like grief is such a heavy subject and will instantly connect with like anybody in the world who's lost anybody like to give it such a lame outline like to do something that feels so familiar that doesn't feel like movie like it, it just feels like a crime to do it that way um which it, in a in a sense you could say that hereditary midsummer aren't that because they're so extravagant uh, but in a way i feel like they are just in terms of the story and the kind of characters i'm getting and how they're exploring i'm like it, it did feel like to me like he never attacked grief in the way i really wanted movies to but the way you describe but was afraid handling it intrigues me i will say <laughs> we'll see <laughs> yeah i i'd be i'd be curious to see your thoughts yeah hear your thoughts um yeah i will not write them down i will only speak them out loud <laughs> so what's what's number one for you uh number one is a movie that deals with grief um I, it's funny i told my wife about this episode and what my rankings were and i said what my number one movie was and it'll be it was no surprise to her to find out that this was my number one movie only and it was only in the sense that she's like oh you've you watched this movie for the first time this year like you've seen this movie so for the record i've seen this movie well I watched it five times, technically, um, but kind of six times because I watched it for the director's commentary, too, <laughs> when I wrote about it. So I've kind of watched it six times. But I was like, so 20, you've only had one year of Terrifier 2 in your life. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of crazy because, like, I've talked about this movie so much and, like, written about it and just, like, want everybody to know about terrifier 2 and how awesome it is <laughs> that it was surprising to her that it's only been around for 365 days of my life um <laughs> but yeah it's a movie i absolutely adore it, it it elevates to that essential category that's i mean these are the movies that are like my favorite movies ever and the kind of category you can't really get into until i've watched the movie multiple times and formed a connection with it and i was ready to put terrifier there too far <laughs> sorry terrifier 2 there immediately but as i've watched it it's just it's gained its foothold in that category and been a very important movie to me in that way um and mostly how it handles grief because i think it handles grief from both an individual standpoint but also a community standpoint and how art the clown is terrorizing this community that this they lost this little girl who was killed and this little girl becomes like a ghost in the movie who carries art's head around like she becomes like this walking manifestation of communal grief of communal trauma and how it like an entire faction of people can be struggling with something all at once and then to condense that struggle down to one particular family with sienna and, and jonathan and what they're going through in the loss of their father and trying to make sense of it um and on top of the, all that art the clown's name is art the clown like he literally represents art and how we manage these things we're going through and how we struggle to find a narrative for them and uh the this monstrous manifestation of what that battle looks like and like who we're fighting back against like to me terrifier 2 just has everything that i want a movie to be doing in terms of forming an aesthetic and as a whole reflecting something very profound and means something to the world to the person who's watching the movie um and on top of that just 
it, it, it that's one thing though to like have all those elements then to deliver on it with what we're seeing uh to me the movie it's famous for just its brutality and how much these characters are tortured by art the clown and i say the more he's torturing with when that is your the foundation of your story with like all of these people who are struggling with trauma um the more and more brutal you can get with the killings, the more you can drag it out, the more stylistic and cartoonish and ridiculous you can be with it, the more you're delivering that message. Like the movie just has a perfect balance in that way to me um, and how it's just absolutely obliterating these people and push and just tearing their bodies apart and really recreating that emotional circle we go through to something we can see and feel and experience. It's uh I'm just blown away by it every time. I, I've, I, so I watched it the the first time and loved it. Then watched it two more times for the uh, article I wrote on it. And then since then, I've watched it three more times because I've shown it to three different people <laughs> that I just wanted to make watch it. And everyone really enjoyed it, mostly because I went in with such enthusiasm and explained what it's about. And when they watched, it, like, oh yeah, like that was great. So I just, 2023 has been the year of Terrifier two for me. <laughs> It's a, uh, I get it. It feels very much like a Travis movie to me mm-hmm. um, where I'm more in line with house that Jack built as doing a lot of those yeah. things or even like when it comes to grief and community and that aspect um, getting to kind of the broader level. Um, Bo is afraid. I liked a lot of what Terrifier 2 was doing, but I also it didn't quite move the needle for me the same way it did you. Yeah, no, I completely understand that. It's, you know, it's this kind of movie. It's a particular taste. Like, like it's, it's funny because it's not really being explicit about any of those things I said yet. And maybe that's not the intention at all, but the way I always watch it and the way it comes out to me. And then when I explain it to someone who's watching it with me, they're always kind of like, Oh yeah. Like I see what you're saying. Like there's just something about it that I feel I just feel that kind of special connection to that. Um, I don't know if the movie's doing this, but like it is doing this at the same time. Like I can just see it happening and feel it happening. So um, yeah, yeah, it does feel like my movie in that way. It was, uh, I think my, my major complaints, one's like makes sense. The other one was probably a little shocking. The first one I thought the, for some reason, what was the scene where they're singing the song? Uh, Oh, the clown cafe? Yeah, the clown cafe. The dream cafe. sequence, yeah. Yeah, that annoyed me a lot. <sighs> so good. As just <laughs> being too indulgent and not enough payoff Very in indulgent. terms of what yeah. like, I, I wanted. And I also thought, and this is going to sound strange, but I also thought the killings could have been a little more unique or dynamic. Or there was some times where they'd be like really brutal, but I'd just kind of be like, that's it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I almost know what you mean by that. Like, the killings are just, they're so ridiculous that they don't feel real. <laughs> like, it it feels like you're watching, like, a junior high stage production almost. Like, they're just doing all these practical effects and, like, spraying, like, ketchup across the wall. Like, when somebody, like, it's just so, it's so silly in the way they do it that it, I could see it not feeling visceral in the way maybe you'd want it to feel. Yeah, which I think at the very beginning, like the opening scene, I was ready for that 
a little more visceral. Sure. Maybe that on a rewatch, I would have a better appreciation because it's just like expectation versus reality. And then I could go in on the second watch and be like, okay, I'm like appreciating what it's giving us rather than having an expectation of what it might give us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it still was like a very uh, unique and cool movie in especially where horror is at right now. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> um, my number one was uh, Poor Things. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, I did not know that. I didn't expect it to be this high. I kind of actually expected me to not like it as much as people were saying because you just spend months being like, Poor Things, Poor Things, yeah. reading about all these comments about it. And uh, no, it, it delivered for me. Nice. And you know, I I haven't watched a lot of Yorgos. I've only seen The Lobster. I haven't seen The Favorite. Oh. I haven't seen Killing of Sacred Deer. Dogtooth. There's another one. Dogtooth. No, I haven't watched Dogtooth. So I'm not that big of a Yorgos person. Um, but there was just something about this that felt alive in a way that a lot of other movies didn't. Um. It was it was kind of strange. It was like Tim Burton, but good, <laughs> which is a little <laughs> insulting to Tim Burton. But I, Just a I feel like Tim Burton. I feel that Tim Burton has a little bit of a a blockbuster ceiling on what he does. And that some of the stuff starts to rely a little bit more on just the novelty of it rather than the actual craftsmanship of sure. it. And Poor Things, I think, was a nice blend of actually that novelness of a Tim Burton movie with the actual craftsmanship of somebody that is just very technically masterful Mm -hmm. when it comes to shots and framing and the marriage between the story and the scenery. Yeah. And the performances were insane. (laughs) Emma Stone definitely lived up to the hype. And the evolution she has over the course of the movie. But stealing the show, much like with Barbie and the way that Ryan Gosling kind of stole the show, uh, Mark Ruffalo. I heard good things about him. He's a completely different beast in this movie than I've ever seen him in anything else. Like, he's been charming in movies. He's been smart in movies. He's been good in so many things. But this was the first time I felt like he wasn't Mark Ruffalo. Mm Mm-hmm. In a movie like Mark Ruffalo as a newspaper guy, Mark Ruffalo as the Hulk, Mark Ruffalo as, you know, a dad. It right. was it was a entirely different person that Mark Ruffalo was embodying. Cool. And it felt almost like maybe the byproduct of him spending so many years with Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> <laughs> that he was channeling like a little bit of a caricature of Downey. Yeah, right. Flam- <laughs> being a little more flamboyant or something. Yeah, just like flamboyant and like narcissistic and yeah. uh, and not that Downey Jr. is narcissistic, but you know, he's he's yeah. he's got a ego. <laughs> yeah, no, he's like sarcastic and witty, you know, and it's self-deprecating. Yeah, that leading man like energy that Robert Downey like clearly has. Yes. You see Mark Ruffalo embodying that and it's just the performances were astounding. The shot selection was great. Like, it's a bizarre world. Like every shot, the thing that I think wins me over with a movie is, and this is something I think we talked about with past lives, when shot to shot 
scene to scene, you don't really know what you're going to be getting because the movie's just kind of staying ahead of you a little bit and drifting into different like moments. Mm-hmm. And is it afraid to sit in a moment and build atmosphere and build a sense of place and a sense of character and person? It's not always efficient of this is the next like plot thing that we need. This is the next notable dialogue that we need. You just get some scenes that are there to breathe and unfold and build out the, the sense of character and world. And this does that consistently. Uh, so I was like swept up from beginning to end. I thought the performances were great and it was a little less nuanced than I thought it was going to be or a little less in need of explanation or did it have as much on the, the deeper side of things. Mm. So it's an easier movie to kind of follow along with what its themes are and what it's going for. It makes that pretty clear. I like that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And is good about it. Like, I don't think it has to have all the nuance and depth. It's just, it was kind of surprising to me that it was more uh, digestible. Yeah. Where like the lobster is like it's so philosophical that you're like you have to understand the the metaphor before you really understand the movie, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's so many movies that are like that too, which I love. Sure. Yeah. But this was surprising to me how kind of mainstream it was, while still being very artistic and interesting. I like simple movies. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's I feel like it's an art to be simple and also uh, be impactful. Like that's a uh, that's if you can strike that balance, like I'm a fan. Yeah, I think I, I could see why this would make some Yorgos like dieharders be a little upset. Yeah. Like he he sold out or he made something for the masses, but he did a really good job of finding like a middle ground of it. Nice. All. Yeah. It does feel like a little bit a step further than the favorite, which I do think is a little more digestible and ordinary just as a period piece, like a scandalous period piece. Kind of there are a couple of ambiguous moments where you're like, oh, like, what is he saying with that? So it it does feel like he's like he slowly moved away from the lobster, which is purely philosophical to something like poor things, which is just like it's at least a normal story that you recognize and you can just be part of. 1,000%. So I would be interested to watch that. Yeah. I think you'll like it. Is that a long movie too? All of your movies, Uh, all your favorite movies are long. That's my only problem here. I mean, The House That Jack Built and Terrifier 2 are both. Yeah, they're both longer. But those are good. (laughs) I see how it is. I see how it is. Uh, Poor Things Runtime is what an hour 41 minutes or no 141 minutes so two oh hours, i was gonna say minutes. like i was blown away for a second uh, that makes more no, sense. yeah 220 220 that's about the length of terrifier 2 so just know that's what it's going up against yeah terrifier 2 i think was what like 215 it's about that yeah i watched what tar babylon and terrifier 2 like <laughs> all in a week. terrifier 2 was the shortest one yeah <laughs> oh gosh Okay, well, that's our that's our recap. That's season one. Yeah, long-ass episode. Yeah, but, um, you know, if you're a true fan, you listen to the whole thing, and you got to the end here, we'll reveal the first episode of season two. Yeah, that's right. It is going to be... I already told Travis, so you, he's not in suspense. You did tell me, but I, I 
I cannot remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's amazing. Uh, any given Sunday. Oh yeah, 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 that's right. Oh yeah, because it's a movie you've always talked about and really love, and I just have, for whatever reason, never watched it. Yeah, which surprised me because it feels like something that you would have, because you like Oliver Stone, right? Yeah, yeah, but he is also somebody I. I've just missed a lot of his movies, like Natural Born Killers. Like, there are some big movies he has that I've just never seen for whatever reason. I don't know if I've actually seen another Oliver Stone movie. Wall Street? I haven't seen Wall Street. Really? Whoa. Yeah. Cool. How about Wall Street 2? Uh, Money Never Sleeps. No, I didn't <laughs> see that either. Uh, I did see Born on the Fourth of July. Yeah, I've seen that. Oh, I've seen Platoon. I hated Platoon. Oh, yeah? I like Platoon. Yeah, I thought it was just predictable. Like, it was very... From, like, I knew exactly what was going to happen to everybody from the beginning. I haven't seen it in a while, so maybe I wouldn't like it. I don't know. <laughs> uh, JFK I haven't seen. Mm-hmm. I haven't watched all the Natural Born Killers. Alexander I didn't see. He's got a lot of movies. Oh, Savages. Savages. I saw that. <laughs> that, is, that is either an awesome movie or a really, really bad movie. It's just one of those to me. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. So any given Sunday. All right. And we're going to wrap up just because it's the end of the season. Doesn't mean it changes what's happening at the end here. Although there's a little more pressure to get this maybe. But uh, we're going to do the sign off. There's been a lot of discussion around this sign off. And what's really happening behind the scenes. If I'm sabotaging this entire show, the integrity of this show, just to have a laugh and and screw up the timing here at the end but I swear to god that's not happening (laughs) but here we are we're gonna try it again okay you ready yep alright here we go lights camera see ya see ya I don't I don't know that was better better that was close better but close but no cigar Eh, this cigar has the match to it (laughs) 